Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All on one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, March 5th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hardy. Each week we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Let me paint you a vision of the future, one where we're on 100% clean, renewable energy. How likely do you think that is? Hmm. In the movie world or in the real world? In the real world. In the real world, I would say in 100 years, if we're not there, we're in trouble. So I'm going to put my vote on we're there. So one of the reasons that I think most people pause on that idea is, you know, we don't have the political willpower, it seems like, but also people don't think we are scientifically there yet that the technology isn't there yet. Well, one scientist thinks we are there and that we can do this by 2050. We can actually get 80% of the way there by 2030. 100% clean, renewable energy, wind, water, and solar. Wow, but there's a big political hurdle, right? Yeah, this this whole conversation isn't about the real world in the sense that there are political decisions to be made, there's public engagement to happen. But the technical and scientific feasibility of this, where it changes the nature of the conversation to be one of, it is about will, it isn't about waiting for the technology to mature, that does change the the focus of what we have to do, because I thought it would be impossible to do this without a whole mix of fossil fuels, even nuclear power. Yeah, well, that's pretty exciting. So what's the solution? The solution um, comes from Mark Jacobson. He's a professor uh, at Stanford University. He's been doing modeling on climate conditions for a number of years. And a lot of it is motivated by not just the long-term effects of climate change, but the short-term annual effects of climate change where people are dying every year due to air pollution. And a lot of his modeling takes into account sort of global conditions uh, that exist, like grids that are in place already, power generation that already occurs, but also maps onto that investments that need to be made in order to make this all work. And he paints a picture, while unrealistic from a political landscape, very realistic from a scientific landscape, that we can get there by analyzing the globe into 20 different regions and creating different mixes of energy that are specific to those regions. So let's take a short break when we back my interview with Mark Jacobson. 
If you're a fan of mysteries, there's a new podcast called Unexplained Mysteries. Each week, the hosts explore the greatest mysteries of the past and present. From building the Stonehenge to the subject of the Mona Lisa, there may not be a simple answer or explanation, but that doesn't mean there's no explanation at all. And these hosts dig deep to investigate Earth's greatest mysteries. You can check out episodes on Mona Lisa and Stonehenge right now. And with a new episode coming out every Thursday, you can expect many more episodes soon. The whole podcast is driven by a team of researchers and the hosts that use in-depth research and analysis as they look for answers to these mysteries. Visit Apple Podcasts or whatever you use to listen to podcasts and search for Unexplained Mysteries. Again, that's Unexplained Mysteries or go to parcast.com slash unexplained to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash unexplained to listen now. Mark Jacobson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me on the program. Uh, you have a recent paper out that makes a, a bold claim and, and puts forth a bold vision that we can, by 2050, as a globe, be on 100% renewable energy, which is an item that has seemed almost impossible. Uh, how did you uh, ap approach this idea of 100% renewable energy? Well, this uh, idea of 100% clean renewable energy for all energy sectors has really is really an evolution over a long period of time of of this idea. It started around 2009 when just before then I did an evaluation of energy systems. What are potential energy systems to to repower the world uh, and also solve the global warming and air pollution mortality problems? Uh, because I've been, myself, my whole career has been dedicated to understanding and solving large-scale air pollution and climate problems uh, ever since around 1982 when I was first uh, interested in this. I decided that's what I want to do. That was when I was in high school. But then, you know, when I went to college, you know, I started getting the skills to study this issue. And then when I went to graduate school starting in 1989, I finally had the opportunity to uh, try to study air pollution and climate. And that's where I learned how to work on computer modeling, build computer models to simulate at first air pollution, weather, and climate. And then I applied these models for many years. I built them, and I, I'm still building them today. And I've applied them to study the impacts of different energy technologies on the atmosphere, on air pollution health, on feedbacks to clouds and precipitation, and on climate. And from so I compared a lot of different energy technologies over the years, and then I started looking at renewable energy technologies in particular as solutions to climate change and air pollution health problems uh, in the late 1990s. And so all these studies accumulated in 2009 in a review paper that I evaluated a bunch of proposed technologies to solve the global warming and air pollution problems. And from this uh, review, I determined that wind and water and solar power were the best options in terms of a variety of metrics when you combine all the metrics. And some other technologies were in the middle and then other, yet other technologies were not so good. So after determining that wind, water, and solar technologies were the best overall in, the, in terms of many externalities like health, climate, land use, water supply, uh, catastrophic risk, and reliability even, 
after determining these are the best technologies, and then the next question is what um, can we actually power the world with these clean renewable energy technologies, the wind, water, and solar technologies? For this, I started working with uh, Dr. Mark DeLucchi at UC, who's now at UC Berkeley, and we did a study that uh, resulted in a paper in uh, Scientific American that looked, can we power the entire world with 100% clean renewable energy by 2030? And the conclusion was, yes, it's technically and economically possible to do that, but for social and political reasons, it's unlikely to happen that quickly, maybe by 2050. And so that became our goal, a 2050, 100% wind, water, solar system with 80% by 2030. And we subsequently teamed up together for several other papers and involved dozens of, of other researchers and students over the years and developed plans for individual states in the United States. We did 50 state plans. We did a, an 139 country plans. And then I started working on building a model to study the ability for the grids to stay stable with 100% clean renewable energy. And I applied this model at first to the 48 contiguous U.S. states in 2015, and then most recently to our study of um, 139 countries, where we broke up the world basically into 20 world regions uh, and then examined grid stability. And, and this resulted in the paper that you're referring to right now. We're going to dive into the model shortly. But before that, um, you, you mentioned air pollution, and we don't often talk about climate change and air pollution, particularly in terms of the mortality related to air pollution. Contextualize how many air pollution deaths are we talking about avoiding with plans like these? Well, worldwide, air pollution due to fossil fuel and biofuel combustion combined uh, result in around four to seven million air pollution deaths per year. They're about 65,000 per year in the United States. So this is a, a huge problem. It costs the world on the order of 20 to $25 trillion per year uh, based on statistical cost of life and, and illness. You mentioned some of the power sources that you used in your model, wind, water, and solar, but there's a myriad of, sor of subsources between uh, beneath that. Not all wind is the same, not all solar is the same, not all water power generation is the same. So more specifically, what kind of power generation are we talking about in this new paper? Well, they're pretty much the same in all our papers, but the technologies are onshore wind and offshore wind, uh, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, which is where you focus light off of mirrors onto a central tower to heat a fluid. The fluid then can be stored in a tank overnight, and then the hot fluid can be run by uh, water to heat water to create steam to run a steam turbine to generate electricity 24 hours a day. And also solar thermal uh, for heat, direct heat. Uh, we also include geothermal power for electricity and heat, and also existing hydroelectric uh, dams. Uh, to So we don't propose new dams. We've don't have propose any new dams in our 139 country plans, for example. And we have tiny, tiny amounts of tidal and wave power. But in addition to these um, energy technologies to produce power, we also have storage. So there's electricity, heat, and cold storage as well, as well as some hydrogen for transportation. And we're going to get into to storage in a second. Uh, but just to reiterate, of all those technologies that you mentioned in terms of the generation, is your assumption using technology as it exists now, or is there some 
technological development that has to happen with these particular generation technologies in order to fit the model? Uh, no, we, pr- we propose using existing technologies. Now, since we do project forward to 2050 for most all our calculations, uh, we, we do assume some energy, some efficiency improvements in some of these technologies, but they're very modest. And, you know, they're often offset by pop demand increases. So it's, but we don't assume any breakthrough. The only technologies that we need more development of, there are prototypes of, is really in the, um, like transportation, for example, in a aircraft. So aircraft, we propose to use short distance electric aircraft and long distance hydrogen fuel cell electric hybrids. Now the technology exists. I mean, we have fuel cells that are run on hydrogen. We have we actually have existing pro, uh, aircraft that are electric that are can go up to fifteen hundred kilometers, but they're for small, like you know, two to four seaters. And you know, hydrogen did propel the space shuttle and many rockets into space, so it's an existing technology. So, but we don't have commercial aircraft that are hydrogen fuel cell, electric hybrid. So that's like one thing we're relying on, but that's a very small percent of the fuel use. And short distance aircraft, there are many companies already building those as pure electric. And so we need that technology. And also for long distance ships, we would need uh, hydrogen fuel cell, electric hybrids. But pretty much everything else for heating, we have heat pumps. Uh, For high temperature industrial processes, we have electric arc furnaces, induction uh, furnaces, dielectric heaters, those are all existing technologies. For cars, we have electric automobiles, we have hydrogen fuel cell uh, vehicles. So pretty much everything is in place except for a few uh, for the long distance uh, ships and airplanes. It's probably important to note that even though this this model uh, uses existing technologies, you're not... Uh, pretending that this is an easy process to make make the shift to the conclusions reached in this paper. And I think it's important just to get that out up front so that we're not pa- painting this ideology, uh, you know, I- idealized view of the future without acknowledging the realities of, of both politics and implementation. Now, our goal is to really demonstrate what is possible. And then it's up to the people, including you know, all of us, to determine what we want to do. So, you know, we're just trying to show, yes, this is, if we want to go down this path and we want to solve these problems, this is one possible solution. It's by no means the only solution. It's one possible one, but it's, it's totally, we're, what we're doing is totally different from what actually will happen, which nobody knows exactly what will happen. And we're under no illusion that it's easy because there are political, social and political barriers to transitioning. Uh, because a lot of people have their own ideas. Other, in fact, everybody has their own idea of what they want in the future. And unless you have a consensus about which direction to go, it's you know it's going to go along really slowly. But you know we're we're just trying to show from a scientific point of view whether it's technically and economically possible if we do decide to do it, and that's what we think we've found. Why not include uh, nuclear in this analysis, which is not a huge contributor to climate change and global warming? Well, nuclear was it was based. Our original decision was based on our uh, original comparison in two thousand nine, where we evaluated different energy technologies, and nuclear came out it's kind, of, kind of in the middle. It was better than some technologies, certainly better than you know coal or uh, gas in terms of its emissions. Uh, but it's not as good as wind, water, or solar. And it's in terms of emissions, you know, it's relatively low emissions. It's not zero emissions. I mean, in fact, it's still 
somewhere between 9 and 25 times more emissions per kilowatt hour than wind power. And half of that's due to the fact that it takes so long to put up a nuclear power plant compared to a wind farm that while you're waiting around for that nuclear power plant, then you're emitting the regular electric power grid, which is, contains primarily fossil fuels. So there is a lot of emissions associated with that. In addition to the emissions associated with the refining of uranium, which is significant because it's a very energy intensive process. But it takes 10 to 19 years on average in to, to, between planning and operation of a new uh, nuclear power plant. And that includes wind farm, I mean, uh, nuclear plants in China and in Europe, anywhere. That's it always takes around 10 to 19 years versus normally between two to five years for a wind or solar farm. So while you're waiting around for the nuclear you're just emitting all sorts of pollutants. And we need to solve 80% of the problem in 12 years. And if it takes 15 years just to put up one nuclear power plant, we can't solve any problem in 12 years. So that's that's the major reason. But there's the other problem. You have all these risks associated with it. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I mean, they say in their executive summary that with a high agreement that there's... There's nuclear weapons proliferation risk. There's meltdown risk. There's waste waste issues. There's mining risks, and there's public perception. So there's not, so there's not a. It's not like it's an easy technology, either in terms of, of implementing it, or in terms of cost or time. I mean, in South Carolina, for example, two nuclear power plants were being finally being built, but they were they weren't even finished. After nine, I think it was like nine billion dollars was spent. They were just shut down in the last year. They were not even finished in the last year. So every taxpayer in that state will have to pay, I think it was like $250 for the next 60 years, or every ratepayer will have to pay $250 for the next 60 years to pay off this debt because they're so expensive and they take so long to put up that it's an opportunity cost. Why would you spend something that takes so long? and cost so much to put up, regardless of all the other problems. Well, it's really clear why you didn't include nuclear in the in the analysis then. Um, moving on, the underpinning of, of this recent study is really the idea of grid reliability and its ability to consistently deliver power to, to consumers and to uh, businesses. Talk about what that tangibly means um, in, in terms of this paper. What did your model really look at in terms of reliability? So we really looked at the ability to match power demand and supply. Now, so the demand, well, the supply of the energy is from wind, water, and solar. So the way we set this up is, well, the, the climate model that I built over the last uh, 29 years now that climate model predicts the winds, the solar radiation fields over time and so and, and throughout the world. So we developed individual energy plans for 139 countries. Then in the climate model, I put the number of devices that we estimated for each country inside the country and then use the predicted winds to then predict the energy output from the wind turbines and use the predicted solar, which accounts for clouds and particles and reflection and everything to predict the solar radiation over time. And from the wind and solar fields over time, that would use that data set then to drive 
uh, this grid integration model, which I built over the last uh, couple of years, now almost three years, to uh, so to you know, drive that, which in that model, we take that supply and then try to match it with demand for energy. So we obtained uh, demand profiles for uh, all 139 countries. Um, and so we most of these were already available from other studies that had previously been done, other researchers. And we extrapolated those numbers to 2050. And we tried to match the demand with supply alone. But Obviously, that won't work. I mean, all you consider is the supply of wind and solar, which is intermittent, and some hydro and other water sources. That's usually because of the variability of the wind and solar, you're not going to be able to match the demand right away. So we had to add in storage. And so we added heat, cold, and electricity storage. And by the way, we're not only looking at just the electric power grid, but we're looking at electrifying all energy sectors or providing direct heat to those energy sectors. And so we, but it turns out when you electrify all energy sectors, it makes the problem of matching supply and demand more easy because they're more flexible loads. Like cars, you don't have to, you don't need the electricity immediately for charging a car. You can plug your car in at night and then receive the electricity sometime during the night. So, you know, utilities can give people incentives to just charge their cars during certain hours, and that's called demand response. And so we were let, we accounted for some demand response. We accounted for storage, heat, cold, and electricity storage, and the supply of energy. Now, we did assume that the transmission was perfect in, in the sense that, you know, if we had uh, wind in different locations far away, that we could then assume that we had enough transmission to wield that wind to where we needed it. But that, and so we didn't model the transmission system, but we did try to account for the cost of the transmission and the losses through the transmission lines. And those losses are based on the idea of what the the current grids in these regions are able to supply? Or is there something more in terms of infrastructure development that have to be invested into these grids to meet the model's assumptions? Oh, well, so we we would need more transmission in 2050 than today. So we do... Uh, assume more transmission, and we count for that cost or the estimated amount of that cost of the additional transmission we need. And we also account for the estimated losses because we assumed certain lengths of lines and then there are certain losses associated with those lengths. And But it's not perfect in the sense that, you know, there are other types of models where you can actually uh, calculate the flow of electrons through every single node in a grid, but there are just too many. I mean, there's there would be too many to do that kind of simulation compared to what we were doing. We, we traded off being very high resolution in the supply. We were looking at resolution every 30 seconds for five years and, and so, and having details, spatial detail in terms of um, where, you know, wind turbines and solar panels were located and also having lots of storage options and electric generators uh, but having a really simplified transmission system. Because the alternative is you could have a really complex uh, transmission system, but that would make it much more difficult to include all the uh, the supply options and time the time scale of the supply that we used, as well as all the storage options. Let's talk about the storage options in more depth. You, you present three different cases here that all have different 
forms of, of storage associated to them, but they largely revolve around either batteries, some uh, hot and cold thermal storage, and some uh, use of heat pumps and or um, increasing maximum discharge rates at hydropower facilities. Can you talk about these different storage options and, and what they actually tangibly would look like? Right. So, yeah, so we ran three different, for this last paper, we ran three different cases. Uh, one where, well, in all cases, we had some electricity storage. Um, usually we'd have concentrated solar power uh, with associated with storage. We'd have pumped hydroelectric power with storage. And we'd have existing hydroelectric dams, which are a form of storage. And, and then in uh, two cases, we had batteries. In one case, we didn't have any batteries. And, in terms, and also in one case, we included, we added hydropower turbines to existing dams to increase the peak discharge rate of hydropower. But in two of the cases, we had no additional hydropower turbines because we'd been previously... Uh, criticized for having uh, assuming too much uh, additional hydropower or too high of a hydropower discharge rate by adding too many turbines to dams, which is you know may or may not be a legitimate uh, uh, issue because the only question is is it more difficult than putting up a lot of nuclear power plants or just running the whole thing without any storage and just doing transmission like some other studies have tried. Uh, you know, so the, but that's a legitimate issue to to scientific issue, but we decided well we don't need to have make that assumption. There are other ways to do this, so uh, why not just, just run it without any additional hydropower turbines? So we ran two cases without any hydro turbines. Another thing we had people previously questioned in a previous study we had did was whether we should uh, include so much uh, underground thermal energy storage or just as much thermal energy storage as we did. And sure, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis that we shouldn't, we, we can't increase it, but, you know, so we tested a case where why don't we just have no storage whatsoever? No, I mean, no uh, heat storage or cold storage whatsoever and just run everything with heat pumps on demand. And so we did that case and that case turned out stable as well. So it turned out uh, we ran three different cases, one with, just heat pumps, but no thermal energy storage at all. And that was stable. Another uh, case with uh, no uh, batteries, but we added hydropower turbines, and that case was stable. And then a third case uh, with batteries, with no hydropower turbines, with no heat pumps, um, and that case was stable as well. So it seemed like, and then we ran cases in between these, but we didn't report many of them, only one or two. And all those cases were completely stable also. Just to give our listeners a picture, what what does cold and hot storage actually look like? So cold storage and hot storage, I mean, traditionally, it's mostly in water. Like you can store heat in water, in water tanks, and then you can use that heat for either direct heating, like in showers, or uh, domestic hot water, or to heat buildings. Uh, so that's a form of district heating, like in Denmark and many places in Europe, you have district heating where there are pipes running from a central you know, water tank, basically, to all the homes and buildings. And water, hot water just goes to those homes directly and is used for direct heat of domestic water from one pipe or uh, building heat. 
And you can do the same thing with cold, where you can store cold in water uh, and transport that around through pipes, or you can store it in ice. So, for example, uh, my university from 1998 to 2015 had a big ice cube under a building. And during the night when the electricity price was low, uh, electricity was used to produce ice. And then that ice was stored until daytime uh, when water was then tra uh, transferred through pipes, through the ice to cool the water. The water is then sent to building to buildings to cool the buildings, and that avoided air conditioning in the afternoons in the summers, for example. So it's like a form of battery storage, but it costs one-tenth per unit energy. Let's talk about some of the economic factors here. There's obviously capital cost to increase generation like this. Does your paper examine some of the capital costs, and, and what are some of the estimates? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we perform a full cost analysis of all our energy production and storage and transmission distribution uh, to the extent we could. And the costs, so the costs um, are taken from today, but then try to, we try to move forward to 2050. And well, the key is like, I guess the question is really what, you know, what are the costs compared to a business as usual system, I assume. And so if I looked at the overall cost of energy, uh, that we calculate, well, there are three components of this cost of energy. One is the direct cost of energy, and then there's the health cost and the climate costs. So, you know, the fossil fuel system has a strong, high health and climate cost associated with it, uh, whereas the, the electricity portion of the fossil fuel system is, is maybe a fourth, a quarter of the total cost. So in other words, you know, fossil fuel system for electricity costs around almost 10 cents a kilowatt hour when you account for transmission, distribution, generation, storage, et cetera. But it's overall health plus climate plus electricity cost is around 40 cents a kilowatt hour or closer to 38. So it's like the total cost is four times the electricity cost. Now our wind water solar system is on the order of 10 cents a kilowatt hour as well. But the thing is we use in a wind water solar system, we use 50% less or fewer kilowatt hours. So even though the cost per kilowatt hour is the same in terms of the direct cost, we use one half the number of kilowatt hours in a wind water solar system. So we have one half the direct cost or one eighth the total social cost for wind water solar versus fossil fuels. And do these costs account for the amount of capital that has to be put into increasing the overall generation that's needed by 2050. Oh, yeah, for sure. So the the cost of energy, the cost per kilowatt hour, uh, the main information you need is the capital cost, which is the upfront cost of, of buying or building the equipment or installing it. Plus, there's operation and maintenance costs, which occurs each year. And then you have to account for the interest rate over time. And so when you actually, so you don't, the capital cost itself is only one portion of the cost of energy. And so, so we try to look at things in terms of cost of energy because that accounts for all the components, including the capital cost, the operation maintenance cost, the interest rate, and the time over which you're running this equipment. And so that's usually the metric you look at. But in terms of capital cost, that's important because it is money out of your pocket that you have to spend usually up front. And capital costs of clean renewable of wind, water, and solar are generally higher than capital costs of fossil fuels. But the fuel cost of fossil fuels 
is much higher because the fuel cost of wind, water, solar is, is zero. And so when you account for the fuel cost of fossil fuels, plus its capital costs, plus its operation and maintenance cost, and plus its interest rate, the direct cost of energy per unit energy is similar to the wind, water, solar system. But the wind, water, solar system, again, you use half the energy because of several factors that I can easily go into if you want. But it's, it's you, you, you need half the energy without changing your habits. And that's the real advantage of the wind, water, solar system. It just requires much less energy. Even though this this model is global in nature, I'm wondering if the the costs associated with this are spread evenly across those different regions that you split it up to, or is this a situation where certain areas it's going to just cost more versus others? Well, it does cost more, but I mean, like in some places versus others, because some places the cost of labor is much lower. But then you get into a comparison of, well, okay, so let's say it costs less in one place versus another, maybe you know, in terms of absolute cost, but maybe the, um, you know, the average wage is lower also in that other uh, region. So the actual relative cost is about the same. So regional differences caused by like availability of, of sunlight because of clouds or availability of, of, of water systems, it didn't pose a huge a variation in in what your model saw. Oh yeah, so that kind of variation. Yeah, there's also this variation in cost due to the fact that you know this, as you go further north, there's usually less overall sunlight available for solar, and generally as you go further north, the winds get better. So that we kind of tried to account for that by, like in certain places, we looked at the resources of wind and solar and everything else in each country. And so countries that are, let's say, further north are going to have less solar generally than countries that are further south. So we would actually develop less solar in those countries and have more wind usually because they're, they're usually windier. Uh, and so we try to account for that. But nevertheless, you still we still want a balance of wind and solar because uh, there's, there's still a benefit of having solar even in high latitude countries. And so, yeah, there is a sacrifice of some cost there, but it's uh, over a smaller percent of the of the total mix of energy. Is this plan basically a get us to 2050 and this is what it looks like? Or is it sort of staged in where there are some ways we can accomplish where we need to go by by 2030 as a, as a middle point? Well, we most of our analysis is at 2050, but then we propose a timeline to get there with 80% by 2030. So we don't we don't develop individual analyses for every stage. We're looking more at the end end game because it's just too too much to look at otherwise. But the idea that you can progress in, in 12 short years to an 80% model is within the realm of possibility. I mean, putting aside some of the political and social issues. Yeah. So, no, so we do think it's definitely technically and economically possible because we're the, all the technologies that we need to get 80% are here. The technologies that we need to get 100%, some of them need to still be developed, including those long-distance aircraft and ships. But we don't propose those until, I think, 2037 to 2045 to get those fully implemented. But to get to 80%, you know, we, everything is available. The question is, can we ramp it up? I think we can. Can we ramp up production? But, again, that's collective willpower. We have to decide that we want to do it. I mean, we've had massive scale-ups before. 
deciding that we want to do it is is sort of the key question here. You you present a very optimistic view, saying that this is definitely possible. How do you think um, this study can or will interact with policymakers as as they're sort of thinking about uh, their power mix going forward? Well, I think it's it's already being thought of by policymakers, and some have taken action. And I should just point out, though, I mean, people do want this because there was a poll by Orsted in November of 13 countries with 26,000 respondents to this poll and 82% said they they wanted 100% clean renewable energy you know, for, the, for their future. And this compares in the same poll, only 66% of the people believe that climate change is a significant international problem. So more people really want 100% clean renewable energy than believe in climate change. And the reason it seemed from the same poll, because they asked other questions, was, well, people believe renewable energy provides energy security. It provides economic well-being as well. So a lot of people do believe in it. But the question is, there's, you know, you, can, you only need a few people to stand in the way. Now, in terms of policies, so we, we've been working on these plans uh, since 2009. And... A lot of groups have taken these on. There are now over 70 nonprofits that have really dedicated themselves now to uh, educating the people, public, and, and, and trying to get policy in place for 100% clean renewable energy. And this has resulted in now uh, 58 towns and cities across the United States and additional ones in, in Canada uh, committing to 100% clean renewable energy. Uh, we have There's also like 100 and uh, 20 companies plus uh, international companies that have committed to 100% clean renewable energy through re100.org. And there are four proposed laws or resolutions in the U.S. Congress for the U.S. to go to 100% clean renewable energy. This Senate bill, I think, is 987 and House, Res House Bill 3314, I think that's the right number, uh, are both for the U.S. to go to 100% uh, clean renewable energy by 2050, and there are two resolutions as well. There are four states that have either existing laws or pending laws. Hawaii has an existing law for the electric power sector to go to 100% by 2045. California and New York have existing laws for their electric power sector to go to 100%, sorry, 50% by 2030. Uh, California has a pending law for the electricity to go to 100% by 2045 and 60% by 2026. And Massachusetts has a pending law to go to 100% in all energy sectors by, I think, 2050, if I'm not mistaken. So there are there are actions going on in the U.S. and also around the world, uh, really trying to make it, you know start to move things. But there are also at the same time there are a lot of obstacles too, and uh, I think we're all familiar with those. One of the things in terms of reading your paper that I walked away with is even though there are these. Uh, state by state sort of uh, reasons to be optimistic or or notes that that say that there is a shift towards more clean re renewable sources that we need to think more regionally uh, that these borders that we have erected are going to pose a a problem if we want to get to a hundred percent solution is that the right interpretation we need to move beyond some of these borders when it comes to energy production and transmission if we're going to really solve this problem? Well, I think it helps to make the system more efficient if you if you do have interconnection uh, between borders. Well, it could be between states or sometimes countries. 
that can make the system more efficient. Now, it doesn't mean you can't solve it without, you know, within each region. In fact, you have to for island countries. You need to, you can't rely on cross-border um, transfers of energy. But there's a trade-off between storage and transmission. And because, you know, what, if you have no storage, then you'll need to transmit things long distances. Conversely, if you have no transmission, uh, you'll need to produce as much as you can during the times of the year that it's available and then store it as much as possible. So the real solution lies between the two, where there's going to be a certain amount of storage and a certain amount of transmission. Right now, uh, storage is looking pretty good, but it's never going to be 100% of it. Uh, and th But there's a lot more we can do with it. And at the same time, there's a lot of advantage to uh, using more transmission too. And that's you know interconnecting between countries, states, or large regions. To wrap up, it sounds that you're very optimistic about the technological and economic conditions around being able to pursue this vision. Is that the same sense that many of your colleagues and, and the, the science community around this issue feel as well? Yeah, well, we've done studies on 100% systems, but you know there are 30 peer-reviewed published papers showing that the grid can stay stable with 100% renewable energy or near 100% renewable energy uh, that have been around for most of them are most more recent years, but also from a little further back. So we're not in isolation to find this conclusion that it's possible, and more and more people are coming to this conclusion from a scientific point of view. But as I mentioned, 82% of the people of the world, according to that Orsted poll, want 100% clean renewable energy. So I know I'm not alone. I, I am optimistic because since doing this, I, I really feel confident that this is possible. I'm, again, under no illusion that it will happen because of the obstacles that the, you know, they're all is the people who have the financial interest in the current infrastructure don't want to change it. And so they're going to put obstacles in the way as much as possible. So, and I know politics is not, um, it's easy, not easy to overcome, but I think people are behind it and this is the direction we're moving. And, you know, so the more people are behind it, I think the more chance there is for it to actually go through. I think knowing that it's possible changes the conversation from one of a, a science conversation to one of a conversation on the, on the political will that people have, which is an interesting place to be. Uh, Mark Jacobson, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me on your show. I think it's really exciting that we have all of these technologies that they seem to be, you know, at least down the pipeline and they seem to be realistic for the first time in ever. <laughs> but I, I just I just have no faith in uh, governments being able to implement these kinds of changes. Well, I agree with you on a certain scale. Like here in the U.S., it doesn't feel realistic right now to a certain extent. But there are other countries where this is a, a choice between life and death because their country might not be there uh, come 2050. But moreover, I think we're seeing states, cities, local towns make the investments necessary to move in this direction already. So maybe it's not going to be this wonderful linear path that like somebody just stamps a piece of paper and says, we're doing this and comes up with a plan for it. Maybe it's this mishmash. But knowing that the science says that we can do this, that this is feasible, that this isn't a moonshot. This is a with technology 
where it is now, does it change your mind at all about how you approach the voting box? Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. And especially here in California, where, you know, we like to think ourselves as leaders in this kind of change. And, you know, I, I know renewable energy is a big deal to a lot of Californians. So, you know, it gives me hope that maybe at least when we have a gubernatorial election coming up, uh, we can vote for a candidate who might make this more likely to happen. But yeah, I could I could see maybe in by like 2030, 2040, California being a leader in renewable energy if things keep going the way they are. It's soon, isn't it? That was the other thing is when I was looking at the numbers, I was like, oh, 80% of the way there by 2030. I'm like, that's 12 years from now. Yeah, so maybe our kids won't hate us. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. I, the other thing that, that strikes me as important to note is even though Mark addresses some of the, the criticisms his work has received from the community, he is, just does represent one viewpoint and and sort of a model while robust is just one model out there. I think the many other in many others in the renewable energy field aren't as optimistic as as Mark is about the current technology. But they are all in agreement about what it will take to actually get us there. It's not technological improvement. There is no panacea that's coming. Uh, a magical energy producing technology that's going to solve our problems. This is about us it's making politics. decisions. Yeah. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Trey Bean, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihalla, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.